<laughs> Good morning, y'all. You are listening to uh, Lawn Darts Radio right here on Little Raleigh Radio in the Creekside Studio. It is your weekly guide to uh, deliberate leisure. Is that is that how you <laughs> phrase it, Jacob? Yeah, it's uh, your weekly check-in for your dedicated leisure. That's it. Dedicated, dedicated, dedicated and deliberate leisure <laughs> yeah, right deliberate. here in the city of Oaks. And, man, I'm excited for this week. You, so, you know, we have our weekly segment, News in Space, right? I do. You get really excited every I week. I really you. do. It's News <laughs> in Space, sponsored by my NASA logo hat. It's the Worm logo, the finest piece of marketing design in all of human space flight. And guess what? This is an all-news-in-space uh, show today because we have the guys from the Raleigh Astronomy Club here. We've, we've got uh, Mike, uh, Mike Keefe and Doug Lively here from, uh, from uh, Raleigh Astronomy Club. Not only are they part of the club, they're NASA ambassadors. Holy cow. Are you are you with me, Jacob? Yeah, there? I was gonna say they're, they're, are you there? they're Nat, NASA JPL ambassadors. So uh, Earth to Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read you there, Benny Mac. <laughs> loud and clear. Oh, loud and clear. <laughs> You're coming through. All 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 systems firing. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us, guys, and thanks for helping us get excited about the happenings in the heavens. Oh, we're glad um, to be here. Our pleasure. Good deal, good deal. So, um, tell us a little bit about the mission of the Raleigh Astronomy Club. What all? What all do y'all do? And what all do y'all? Uh, what, what all? What all? What all do y'all do? <laughs> yeah. So let me. Uh, this is Doug. I'm, uh, let me just start off with that. So Raleigh Astronomy Club actually started off just like a really small group of people back in 1978 at Meredith College, and so um, it's blossomed into. Um, a really uh, large club. We have about mm -hmm. uh, 550 members now. Oh, yep. wow. And so we do a lot of, um, our mission really is, is astronomy education. So we do a lot of uh, schools, churches, scouts. Um, we also uh, provide observing sessions just for the general public. We have a monthly meeting we call First Fridays out at the, uh, with the Triangle Conservancy up in North, uh, North Raleigh, near uh, between Raleigh and Creedmoor. Mm -hmm. So it's a really fun time where the public can come out and have a great time just, uh, you know, with kind of more of a, a personable atmosphere. Uh, we've got uh, scopes, but we usually have like a few pavilions set up. Sometimes we'll have a food truck out there or whatever. So it's a lot of fun to come out yep. and kind of come out and just, you know, hobnob with the astronomers and mm -hmm. also just uh, see some of the stuff that we're doing. It's free and open to the public, and pretty much everything we do is free and open to the public. So Yeah, although I'd say hobnobbing is a bit uh, – <laughs> uh, maybe we're putting ourselves a little too much on a pedestal. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say that uh, I, I think the best way to answer the, 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 you know, the question or to add to what Doug is saying is literally our mission is to bring uh, astronomy to the triangle. Okay. Uh, and in whatever form that takes, whether it's a member – um, and helping people get educated and get into the hobby or the general public and just, you know, increase awareness. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I would find that a lot of people have, you know, a passion for astronomy, mm -hmm. something that they, that they know is like inside them. Uh, and they've kind of been nurturing that passion for years and they just don't know how to go any further with it. And so the club's a great place uh, to get involved with will really help you nurture that passion for astronomy, give you the tools and the education that you need to actually uh, go up. And I, just myself, I joined the club about 26 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't even point to Orion yeah. in, the, in the night sky at that point. You know? Can and you so still? Just, 
Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because don't embarrass a, me, Mike. <laughs> a, a, Orion's the about the only constellation that I can see from my house in yeah. si- in southeast Raleigh. Uh, and we'll talk more about that, about, you know, finding good places mm-hmm. to go stargazing and whatnot. Yeah. But um, it, it's just fascinating that we've had that we have the Astronomy Club and it's been around the, for so long. Yep. Yeah. And the other thing I'd, uh, also to add, just uh, one amazing event, actually two amazing events that we are always part of. Uh, the first is usually the last weekend of January, mm. uh, in between basically the uh, the uh, Super Bowl and then the AFC and NFC championships. We don't want to mess up anybody's uh, um, you know, plans up for, for fo- football on the weekend. But uh, it's Astronomy Days. It's held at the uh, North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, yeah. and uh, it draws about anywhere from 13 to I think the biggest one we've had is maybe 17,000 people <laughs> over the weekend. Uh, and then coming up is we're supporting the uh, statewide uh, star party, uh, and that's part of um, I can't even remember the uh, governing organization. Uh, well, Moorhead Moorhead is is yeah. locally is 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 running it, and yeah. it's it's the largest. In fact, we like to say our uh, our organizer uh, Amy Sale likes likes to say that it's the largest star party in the universe. Yep. <laughs> so that's another <laughs> really fun yeah. uh, opportunity to get out and. And uh, again, be with other astronomers, look at equipment, uh, and see you know uh, the what's going on. And we have we really show some really cool uh, deep sky objects. But yeah, yep. it's a it's a national science uh, grant that uh, that Amy mm-hmm. is is using to fund this across the state. Yep. And that and that's uh, Moorhead Planetarium at right. UNC Chapel Hill. Yep. Yes. Yep. And the statewide. So there's a whole month of science that um, is uh, part of um, this event. Uh, but towards, I think it's like the 22nd, uh, I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head, yeah. but it's that, that weekend, Friday and Saturday, I think it's the 21st and 22nd. Of April? Uh, of April, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And they're going to be um, just, you know, star parties across uh, the state. So Over about two or three days as well. Totally so count. Yeah. yeah, so we'll have, we'll probably, I think the club is have, it has at least four that we're doing uh, in, in and around the triangle, yeah, so. So what do y'all do to uh, obviously your outreach is big for for y'all. What do y'all do to, for folks who are just you know trying to get started in astronomy? They may yeah. have like a and they may have like a, a an interest in whatnot, but uh, trying to navigate their way into into the science. Yeah, I'd say that's it, it. With the advent of the internet and there's just so much information, at times it can feel like trying to drink water from a fire hydrant. Yeah, you just it, you can't take it all in. Uh, so we kind of help uh, filter some of that out um, and guide them to uh, certain resources. But more than anything, mm-hmm. we actually run classes. We run oh. workshops. Um, and, you know, COVID put a really big dent in, in that, and we're really just starting to uh, put those together. In fact, Doug, you recently... Uh, yeah, last Sunday I, had a, I, I ran a, a workshop on intro to astronomy. And so that will actually go up on our YouTube page. Uh, probably in the next week or so, and so that's and that's also free and open to the public. You can uh, check out Raleigh Astronomy Club at our, uh, our on our YouTube page, and everything there is free and open to the public. So you don't pay anything. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to subscribe. You just go in there and start looking at videos and stuff. And we'll take we'll take you all the way from not knowing anything about uh, astronomy to learning a lot about astrophotography, which a lot of people are really interested in. Yeah, although I feel compelled somehow to say like and subscribe. I, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
click the bell. Helps the channel. <laughs> and like and subscribe. Yeah, like support. and subscribe. <laughs> How did you guys uh, first catch the astronomy bugs yourselves? Oh, I started off like really young. I was like I probably four or five. I was, just, of course, I grew up in in Cocoa, Florida, which is about twenty six miles away from the Cape. Oh yeah, and all that was going on in the nineteen sixties, and that was so cool. Uh, whenever they tested the rocket engines there, I mean, you just don't really understand how powerful those engines are. Our house was about 26 miles away. When they were um, testing those Saturn V F1 engines, literally the house would shake. Yeah. Stuff would like, literally, it was like an earthquake. <laughs> stuff would rattle off the table, windows would break, stuff like that. So they were always like sending out the message. I, I got the bug really early. That's the, that's the bottom line of that, you know. Uh, you know, when you the time when they had Alan Shepard up there, and they said, "Well, we're pausing there," when Alan was having to um, relieve himself. Relieve himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that was I was out there standing out there uh, with uh, you know, in on the playground, you know, waiting for that to launch. To launch, uh, I remember my my teacher saying, "Now, folks, this is history." <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> I'm in history. I'm too young to be in history. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, th that kind of thing, you know, uh, when you see hidden figures and all the kids are out there watching it, uh, watching John Glennon blast off. Yeah. That was me. I was like a little like first or second grader out there watching John Glennon. All that stuff was just so amazing. Uh, you know, so I got the bug like super early. Yeah. And I'd say I I caught it um, about the age of six or seven. Uh, right when Star Wars came out, that's, okay, that started the space and sci-fi fantasy, and um, then the first shuttle launch in uh, eight, 1981, that kind of sealed it. Oh, yeah. uh, in fact, I remember I uh, I told my mom I was <coughs> feeling sick that day. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I, I watched the shuttle launch, and after seeing all that, I was. I literally went over to my Legos and tried to build a <laughs> shuttle yeah. out, of, out of Legos. Cool. Yeah. And Very you've got cool. you've got a nice Lego uh set, don't you? I do. I have uh I have a Lego set of the Saturn V rocket. Ooh. Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so does mine. Which has one thousand nine hundred and sixty nine pieces. <laughs> Which I think is quite apropos. Hey, absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's, it's been uh, I spent more than a week putting it together, but I mean it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic set. If you're really a space nerd like that, it, it makes a really nice mantelpiece, and it separates into the stages too. Yep, mm -hmm. really like, cool. I, I use that Lego model when I do a talk called um, the Saturn V, the rocket that took us to the moon. Yeah, and it, it's great to have that 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 model right there. Yeah. Uh, until it falls on the ground. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and from from teaching models to telescopes, uh, if you're trying to inspire love uh, for astronomy, do you all find that uh, tactile things are really important? Because um, you know you you obviously have the sense of wonder when you you look up, um, but then you can't touch. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think the 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 most important thing, especially for kids getting started, or you see someone who's very interested is to show them or actually have them move the telescope, whether it's manual or whether it's, uh, you know, it's, it's motorized, and literally have them move to an object, a bright yeah. object, like a planet or maybe even the moon. Uh, but for them to actually go through the process to, you know, manipulate the telescope to that object and then have to focus it, and then they're actually seeing the fruits of their own work, 
it actually makes it attainable. So often think people think that this is something that's out of reach uh, to them. So yeah, and and really, if you know, it's it's something that just about anybody can do. Did you? Yeah. Well, go ahead. No, I was going to say, my, building on what Mike's saying, early success is key. I mean, you want to have a really early success, you know, within the first 10 or so minutes of bringing a scope out. And I think one of the, the issues that a lot of people have when they're trying to get into astronomy is they, they go on Amazon, they look at something that is, like, really complex, and they think, that's got to be a really good telescope. Yeah. And no. <laughs> That generally what happens is they take it out for one frustrating night, it goes in the garage, and they never it never sees the night at night sky ever again. So we really like to, first of all, say, look, uh, don't go buy a telescope, if, especially if you want to join the club. Um, come out to some, one of our observing sessions, mm-hmm. you know, and we even have a loaner program for yep. people who live in Wake County oh, called cool. the Telescope Loaner Program. Oh, that wow. Are, that are members, though. That are members. And then uh, we'll loan you a scope for about three to six months. And you can actually try before you buy. But we really do stress, get something simple so you can have an early success. Mm-hmm. We have club members uh, who actually uh, went out one night. I mean, these are people who, when they were first getting started, saw a bright star and they didn't know what it was. And they just moved the telescope over to that to look at it. And it turned out to be Saturn. Yeah. And that wow moment is what was the thing that really got them. It's just, it's just Saturn is just impressive, you know, but the moon, uh, you know, Jupiter, Jupiter's moons, you know, those things, those are easy objects to get and they get initial success. And so early success in astronomy, we find is what really helps kind of kickstart that passion and everything. So we'll talk more about this after the music break, but I do want to ask y'all, did y'all see that damn green comet? Because I didn't. <laughs> I don't think I could. I, I did not see that damn green comment. You did. We were, we were texting back and forth a couple of times. It's like, all right, yep. find Venus. Now look <laughs> look towards Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, between the light pollution and the weather. bad weather yeah. and, yeah. you know, having to work in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it. You saw <laughs> it. Oh, you lucky devil. Well, you're, ret- <laughs> you're retired, so you're lucky. Well, there you go. <laughs> Well, good deal. Well, let's All take right. a well, let's take a music break here, Jacob. What are we going to yeah. listen to? Uh, we're going to keep our International uh, Women's Month playlist going. In a moment, we'll play some Angelique Kijo with Shunguzo with "Men for Me." But first up, thought uh, we'd have a lot of fun by uh, recapturing the love and joy of music that Sister Rosetta Sharp shared with us. Uh, here she is with "Shout Sister Shout" on Little Rally. That's coffee right here, Little Rally Radio. Song is "Runaway." And uh, we're in the studio this morning here at Lawn Darts Radio with Mike and Doug from the Raleigh Astronomy Club. Good morning, guys. Good hey, good morning. morning. Yeah, and uh, we were talking a little bit about everything while the music was playing. I, I looked down, and we're, we're, we're on other planets. I looked back up, and we're, we're talking about telescopes you should buy. Yeah. So uh, where, where do you guys want to go first? So let's, let, let, one, of the, one of the reasons I wanted you guys on is because a little bit of selfish reasons here. <laughs> I'm really in the market. I really kind of want to look at getting a telescope because I'm, you know, I do stargazing, but I only ha- I'm only you doing it with the naked eye right now. Sometimes I have a, a pair of binoculars, but if I'm really looking for a good telescope, what should I look for, and in what direction should I be going in? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of times it really will be uh, dependent upon 
how you want to take your your journey in astronomy. Do you want to you know ultimately just do visual and kind of just look with your eyes, or are you going to want to uh, eventually take photographs or you know maybe you know do video astronomy something like that? So, um, but I'd say for for most people starting out with a simple telescope. Um, like a, they call it a Dobsonian, which is basically a, a large tube, and it sits on a base that's almost like a, a lazy Susan. It spins around, um, uh, basically, it can go all the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west, uh, but then it also has a rocker, these basically bearings that allow you to kind of move it up and down. So you basically can hit anything in the sky, and it's all manual. Um, they're great. That's probably the best, uh, best bang for your buck in that you're spending the most of money for optics and the least amount for you know other uh, sorts of things. Uh, the downside of those is they can be a little bit heavier and they can be more difficult to transport. So if you're you know planning on maybe you know putting stuff in your backpack and trying to bike somewhere, a Dobsonian is not yeah. going to work for you. And you yeah. got to find at home a good place to store it. So. Mm-hmm. You know the thing that's really also good about about the Dobsonians. We mentioned it earlier in the in the earlier uh, segment was that uh, a simple success at the very beginning is important. And with a Dobsonian, you can get that early success. And as Mike mentioned, you know you could transport it, but you know in terms of setup, from car to ground only takes about sixty seconds. So wow. you just put the base down, you put the tube in the base, and you're ready to point and shoot. Uh, rather than having to level it, you know, and and find where the Polaris is and and do all this uh, all these gyrations, it's very simple. You don't have to do any of that. Just put the base down, put the tube in, and you're ready to go. Point and go. Point and go. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And so that leads to that early success. And then, as Mike mentioned earlier, getting some of those brighter objects, say like the Moon, Jupiter, Venus, um, you know, Mars, those, Saturn, Saturn, yeah. absolutely. That is so important to ensuring that, number one, not only yourself, but your kids and everything will be excited every time you go out. And you're probably going to be more likely to take something like that out into your front yard or your backyard, you know, and, you know, just uh, just on a lark rather than saying, oh, I've got to get that thing out and set it up. And it's just so you can hard. Drive out somewhere. Yeah, drive out somewhere. Dark. Yeah. yeah, but you can do a lot in your own driveway. Mike and I yeah. can certainly attest to that because over COVID we were – we were kind of, you know, commandeered to our driveways, and yep. you know, we were able to see some great stuff from there. But we also were able to do um, some live streaming of stuff oh, yeah. because we both have um, some of the more advanced telescopes that are motorized, and um, so you know, kind of going on the other path. If you want to do something like that, again, success is going to be more sporadic at the beginning, mm-hmm. but you can definitely get there. Um, so we use astronomy cameras kind of plugged in uh, to the back of the telescope instead of an eyepiece and we'll basically share the images uh, live so um, it's not true astrophotography it's more kind of you're engaging and you're kind of using the camera's ability to um, really detect that faint objects yeah. uh, and then you know render that on a screen and it basically happens in real time wow yeah and so to, and so in terms of what Mike said if you're one of those people who are technically inclined uh, so technology doesn't put you off, and you're really patient because, as you know, you guys are working in radio and everything. You have to be like, you have to be able to troubleshoot. You have to find out, hey, did I miss a connection or something like that? Then, yeah, a telescope like that is for you. 
both of us are technically inclined. We and we have some great scopes, and they work really well and everything. But there is a bit of a learning curve when you first get a computerized scope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd say a much steeper learning curve than a manual. So it really yeah. depends on kind of where you want to take it. And if you don't know, then start simple, uh, and then work your way up. Uh, I will say that for the most part, uh, most of my gear I've always bought used, mm. um, and you can typically turn around and sell it for almost what you pay for it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, most astronomers really take great care of their yeah. equipment and okay. everything, you know. And I want to say, too, when you get those successes with those scopes, then you're going to really appreciate it. Because like Mike is saying, when you're able to take your images and live stream them over Zoom or over uh, other social media, and you know that you're hitting a much larger od- audience with stuff that you're producing, it really does, you know, and yeah. your passion up for for doing more and, and and better things in astronomy. Yeah. Now, are there new telescopes that kind of work with apps to find out where they're locking in, or do you still kind of just start with the basics, like all right, find Sirius and set your your coordinates? And yeah, so I you know the technology is just exploding these days, and and if you're getting into it and you ha- and you want to lay some money down. I mean, there's the the new unistellar telescopes that are coming out are just fantastic. Literally, you can put them in a backpack, carry them with you, set them up, and then those turn them on, and those scopes will set themselves up. You will you will lay some money down for it, but uh, you the thing that's really cool about that not only can you then begin seeing objects. Your friends can connect with their cell phones and be re- begin receiving those objects on oh, their cell phones. Oh, that's it's cool. cool. Yeah. It's way cool. Yeah. The other thing too is it's not just it's not a trinket though, uh, because uh, we actually have one of our our club members uh, actually uh, participated in a in a scientific study, and his name is on a paper right now. Uh, with Whoa. Us, with, yeah, he he was uh, he was doing the study. Remember when? When uh, NASA sent a probe to Didymus and impacted the yes. asteroid, yes. he was actually observing with his unistellar at that point in time. And so he was actually able to get data from that, send that into NASA, and he got he put his name on a paper. Yep. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you can do some real science with them, too. Oh, yeah. So yeah. The, uh, that kind of presents an interesting question where uh, we talked, you know, how to get people into things and make those, have them have those accomplishments of seeing great things from the very beginning to right. get them excited about it where does where does the science come in you know where you're not just you're observing what's there but then all of a sudden what are some good questions that astronomers ask themselves that you know that keep that yeah. curiosity that we talked about last week alive well yeah. i think one thing that pretty much anybody that loves the night sky can do uh, are often some of these surveys where um, yeah. they will ask you to uh, ob- observe the sky uh, for certain constellations at certain times of year and estimate brightness and what you what stars you can see and potentially which you can't. So that actually helps map out light pollution, um, and so that data is very valuable. Um, but oftentimes, um, you know, s- the public f- thinks that the sky is like monitored 24 hours a day by professional astronomers and telescopes, and that's just not true. Um, it's very hard, uh, or it, to get time on a professional telescope and they have to put in requests months and months in advance. So oftentimes if there's a big event, um, it's, you know, you're very limited in who can actually move the telescope and, and watch those events. So um, a lot of the more serious uh, amateur astronomers get involved in 
measuring those events again right. you all you need is a camera and you're basically able to take that data it's at the end of the day it's just ones and zeros and uh you know take that information and then feed it back to the professionals that'll then kind of crunch the data and analyze so you know just recording or, or taking pictures um helps it, it reminds me of that Simpsons episode where uh, Principal Skinner's looking for he's looking in the night sky, and Bart Bart just <laughs> spins his spins his telescope around and discovers the comet. <laughs> <laughs> if only it were that easy. I know, if right? If only were that simple. <laughs> I, I would so love to uh, be able to name a comet or an asteroid after myself. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So right now, Venus, and I think Venus this year is is really putting on a light show. Oh, right, yeah. I think right now it's Venus and is it Jupiter? Jupiter, or, yeah, yep, Jupiter. Yeah, that are yeah. sort of dancing around each other. Right. What are some other things right now that people can see uh, in the night sky? Some really neat things that are going on. So the springtime is really one of the great times that you can actually get out and see some of the really interesting objects. Um, we have a complete uh, set of objects that are called Messier objects. They were actually discovered by a French uh, astronomer. A comet hunter. A comet hunter oh, wow. uh, back in the uh, 1750s. And uh, his name was Charles Messier. And so um, all of those objects in springtime, you can see every one of those objects um, over the period of a night. So they're really neat and interesting deep sky objects. Scob uh, objects like globular clusters. Planetary nebula, which are stars like our own sun that have run out of fuel, and they're like literally look like smoke rings in the sky. Yeah, they're yeah. so cool to look at. And then, uh, you know, galaxies. Uh, our favorite, one of the be most beautiful ones, the Andromeda Galaxy, yeah. which is actually headed towards our own Milky Way. You can see it; it's really beautiful. Um, Orion Nebula. Yep. It's still, the most, you can still see Orion. Yeah, oh, but yeah. even the uh, the Virgo uh, in the constellation of Virgo, there are just so many galaxies sure. in that view. Because uh, basically, in the springtime, our view is oriented such that uh, we're not kind of staring or being able to look between some of the spiral arms of our own galaxy, but rather right. we're able to see in a certain part of the sky. Right. We're actually looking beyond our galaxy, and mm. it's just. It's amazing. I mean, yeah. You, yeah. you could literally spend the entire month of April, and I don't think you could actually observe all the galaxies that are there. Yeah, I mean, there's like tons of them. Yeah. Holy literally. cow. I mean, and Leo's another one. You know, yeah. It's, it's great right underneath Leo and everything. Tons of really cool yeah. galaxies and stuff, you know. That's where a larger aperture telescope really comes in, yeah. into play, and also being in an area where there's dark sky. Exactly. Because you really need but, that dark sky to yeah. bring those faint galaxies so, in. So where are the best places around the triangle to go you know, star star hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess we'll ask that qu that trick question. Yeah, we'll, exactly. we'll, yeah. we'll answer that just by a plug for um, you know trying to curb light pollution. I know there are many uh, many pollutions that you can try and uh, to solve, but light pollution is one of those that's really easy uh, to to fix. Just stop beaming light up and don't use light when you don't have to. Right. Um, but I would say that. Uh, first of all, you've got to find a place that uh, is free of obstructions. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we've got lots of trees. Yes, <laughs> to yes deal we with. do. So yeah. find a place without trees, um, a park, uh, soccer fields, you know, somewhere where you can be there at night without, um, you know, getting uh, trespassed. Uh, but I would say the location that we've been using up uh, at uh, Three Bears Acres is is actually pretty dark. There's, uh, you know, sections near Jordan Lake um, that used to be 
really dark that are not so dark anymore, but yeah. darker than what we'll get kind of in the uh, in the triangle in the, area. Yeah, in the Raleigh carrier. Um, mm-hmm. We do some observing down in Johnston County. Yep. Um, but I'll say probably the best place, now it's not in the triangle, but the best place within a two-hour drive. In fact, it takes me exactly two hours from uh, door to campground um, is a place called Staunton River State Park. Oh. Uh, they host, it's an international dark sky uh, site, mm-hmm. So, um, and they actually host uh, two um, star parties a year, and this the skies are remarkably darker, um, and it is a two-hour drive. Where is that? Uh, it is, if you know, basically just beyond the uh, border of North Carolina and Virginia, you'll you'll kind of hit South Boston, and then um, it's basically to a little bit to the north and the east of that. Okay, yeah, it's only a few miles uh, north and east of yeah. of, uh, of South Boston. Yeah. Okay. If you look at a map where I think it's the uh, the Dan River and the Staunton and the Staunton River, River yeah, yeah, where they kind of Con- meet, yeah, creates kind of kind of up little. near Appomattox. Maybe no, no. It's much no, further south. Yeah. Much further south. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. It's, it's literally so. So about north of Eden, then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But All it's right. a great. It's a great dark sky site. Uh, in fact, there's a star party happening next week. Oh wow! In fact, yeah. starts tomorrow. Was, yeah, starts tomorrow. Yeah, and yeah. we will be there. Yeah, we're we're traveling <laughs> up there, grabbing our families, getting on up yeah. there. It's also, you know, the thing is, is star parties are a really great family event. Yeah. So you can get your the wife and the kids and everything go up and camp uh, for a whole week. Get your Put your telescope out on the field. You don't have to tear it down. You know, it's the setup's one time, and you can uh, actually get into some of those really uh, cool night sky objects. So Staunton or Staunton River is a great star party. There's a lot of star parties uh, in and around um, North Carolina that you can uh, you can get involved with. But I think Staunton's probably one of the darker yeah. sky darker sky sites that you can get to. Yeah, yeah. easily. And, and it's got great facilities. So yeah, uh, it's got. You know they've got a campground there now. When it when it's an official star party, you actually can camp on the field, um, so you can kind of camp right next to your gear, and it, it adds a bit of the camaraderie with with sure. other astronomers. But yeah. you know, great uh, campground, uh, nice hiking trails. Yeah, food, food, they, they food. have food uh, <laughs> for the star party. Did I um, say food? <laughs> no, you didn't. Oh, no, food, okay. food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they make the food. You don't. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but I think going back to Jacob's question, just about you know seeing things, um, it's funny. Every time I drag my scope out of the house, um, my neighbors will then ask me, "Oh, cool! What what what's going on tonight?" I'm like, what you're looking the, at? The <laughs> same. This it's going on every night. It's just it's now more visible. It's like yeah. there isn't just necessarily a special event. Every night is a special event. You it's it's amazing the things you can discover. So you don't have to wait for that special event. One of the neat things about the, I use the Night Sky app on my phone, and it'll send me um, notifications. So whenever the space station is flying, yes. oh, yeah. it will send me, it's like, uh, ISS flyover starting now, and I'll run outside and go take a look at it. I mean, it's just, it's 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 incredible to see. Yeah, It really is incredible to see. Are you guys familiar with um, Space Combs? We've got a we've got a mutual friend uh, John Byer who runs a program called uh, Space Comms, uh, which deals mostly yeah. with the International Space Station. But he goes yeah. into classrooms and teaches kids how to send and receive messages. Oh, that's cool! To oh, wow. the International Amateur Space Station. Radio, Ham Radio. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Cool. oh yeah, that's way, way cool. Yeah. There are a surprising number of astronomers that are also hams. Yeah, I'm 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 shocked. Yeah. I, I am not. I am a former ham, but yeah. haven't done it in years. But there are you know there are tons of people in in, in not only. 
Uh, we had probably about three or four at least in the Raleigh Astronomy yeah. Club. There were hams, so it's a it's yeah. a good it's a good uh, segue for hams because they're also able to do their own uh, DXing out in the field and stuff like that, and they're able to to um, to um, contact other folks while they're out in the field. So it's a it's a really good a good uh, draw for hams as well. So uh, former ham does that mean like locale ham? <laughs> <laughs> Low sodium. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. Are there any uh, formal dark sky areas uh, that you all know about in the state, or is it all just um, luck and circumstance? You know, I, I think that that there are. Uh, I don't think there are any formal dark sky parks in North Carolina. Not in North Carolina. So there, the, there is an organization called the International Dark Sky Association, and they're actually tasked with uh, awarding. Um, a dark sky park and they just don't hand that out right so you, the park has to to actually meet certain criteria with respect to lighting the ambient lighting and stuff like that and staunton river really is the only one that i know of uh in the area yeah, they have i think the state of virginia has three state parks that are now um ida compliant or right. um dark sky sites uh, it is kind of sad that we don't have one um, in North Carolina. There just hasn't been a lot of push to to develop that. I'm I'm surprised that Cape Chatteris National Seashore yeah, is one. I was thinking around the cabin yeah. area. Well, yeah, I don't think that they're actually officially a dark sky park, but I know that, uh, and I know Mike's been out there. My wife and I have been out yeah. uh, camping out. We like to go out to. Um, Frisco. Yeah. Mike, you've been out. Where have you been? Uh, Ocracoke. Yeah. I was going to say I've been yeah. to Ocracoke. So yeah. I went to Ocracoke when I was uh, a Boy Scout. And you mm-hmm. get away from the village, you're out on the beach, oh, yeah. and it's yeah. there's it's completely dark. And we saw an arm of the Milky Way out there. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It was just it's, it's incredible out there. It really is. Yeah. I mean, you can literally see structure of the Milky Way. Yeah. Out there, and that's it's it's sad that we have so much light pollution here in the Triangle. I I find it funny we have more PhDs per capita than anywhere else in the world. But more people are afraid of the dark. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> think about that one. Yeah, that was my moving to Raleigh. I mean, I've been here since 96, and that was probably my biggest adjustment was it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Why is the sky still blue? It, yeah, it, right. It took a long, long time to get used Where'd to Where'd you that. come from? Uh, small town in the mountains, uh, Cashers, oh. North Carolina. Oh, okay. okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, He's a mountain man. Is there oh, anywhere yeah. up around Wilkes County, or is that where... where um, I'm from uh, Jackson County. Okay, That's other small. side of Asheville. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, but, okay. Yeah, but my my grandparents, my dad's from Boone, the Boone area. Oh yeah, from mm-hmm. Boone. So yeah. That's Wilkes County, Watauga County yeah. up there. And I've been going up there all the time. Yeah. And, and we could see, you know, from my grandparents' house, uh, you know, which was away from town, we could really see a lot of stars from their backyard. Yeah. That's some other places to to look out now. Um, uh, Baldhead Island. They yes. actually have um certain uh zoning requirements because of the turtles uh, right in terms of yeah. what the residents can you know kind of like they can have um another really nice dark place is i want to say it's uh daunton recreation area it's off of the um blue ridge, Park blue ridge parkway yeah. okay. um and uh the, it's actually pretty dark over o- over there that's near stone mountain yeah north yeah. carolina but yeah. yeah and going east i'm going to say that uh, pettigrew state park yes is yes. another really good one and so it, uh, and they're also friendly to astronomy so if you go there you want to do astronomy and everything just let the rangers know they'll actually call people around in the area and they'll actually have them turn the lights off no kidding. yeah they'll oh, turn off cool. yeah so yeah that's do cool. do that it's it's uh yeah. but it's you place. gotta watch out for the 
the mosquitoes, they, they might take oh, yeah. some of your equipment away with them. <laughs> <laughs> They're that big. Yeah, like the operator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Emerald Isle is another dark place. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, because yeah. because they they also have zoning about um, um, concerning outdoor lighting and whatnot. And I think it's because of the sea turtles. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I've been out observing it in Rural. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've all been kind of observing it, but these are some of the darkest places in North Carolina. Uh, you would think that, you know, we really with North Carolina, we would we would really be respecting the night sky more. Right. But the unfortunate is, is that just the urban sprawl as it's going, it's just, it's, they're just continuing to light up the night sky. You know, it's not, let me just say this, we're not against lighting, um, but we are, we are for lighting responsibly. Sure. So, you know, because uh, we, we do need light to see by. But if you light responsibly, you don't have to uh, shoot it all up in the, into the night sky. We're really you're w- wasting electricity, right? You know, and you're making a slightly hazardous uh, scenario. A lot of the lighting that we're using actually winds up glaring in our eyes rather than really illuminating the areas that it's supposed exactly. to be. Exactly. So. Exactly. So we're not being very responsible using the resources that we have when Did, it comes to light pollution. One of the things I've, you know, we, we've got Dick's Park here in Raleigh, oh, and, yeah. and it's being developed and whatnot. But and you've got the big fields out there, the soccer yeah. fields and whatnot. But it, it it's getting a little bit disappointing because it, it used to be really dark out there, and yeah. now with all the development that's happening in downtown Raleigh, it's not as dark as it used to be. Yeah. No. Yeah, we've been down there observing though. Uh, it's a, it's still it's still a great place to observe yes. from. It, yeah, it's, if, and, you, if you're really close and whatnot, that's a great place yeah. to go. And and it's one of those places where you can literally just, you know, drive up, park, walk walk out on the big field, and set your scope up. Right. Yeah, and you can start going. Yeah, we we've supported several events out there too. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Um, and have one uh, coming up May twentieth, right? Big so, uh, yeah. big astronomy. Come on out. Oh know, yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Should we take a music break, yeah, come back and, and talk more about like let's let's get out of the let's get out of the low earth orbit and go exploring. How about it? That's All a right. good good plan. All right. All right. Uh, I guess uh, we'll hear some Cat Tower next with Horizon and then uh Betty Davis uh, kicking in the eleven o'clock hour there with some Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody. Good morning. You're tuned into Londars Radio and we're talking about outer space, just like we do um, every week. But this week <laughs> for two hours we're 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 having a good time up here. Actually, we we're just talking about various gateway drugs uh, to get into uh, astronomy, and uh, <laughs> and then astronomy can uh, you know we we're talking about science fiction and and fun things like that. But then astronomy uh, can kind of be a gateway drug into engaging with lots of other sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both of you are JPL ambassadors. What what is that? How did how did that come about? Yeah. So uh, originally, I thought, oh my gosh, I can be an ambassador, and when the aliens finally show up, I'll be the first to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> nanu, nanu. Exactly. So no. Uh, so being a NASA JPL Solar System ambassador, you you really are being an ambassador to um, the American public in terms of what NASA is doing with your tax dollars. Uh, so we get, uh, we're basically, we're provided with training, um, and we do all sorts of events to, again, highlight uh, how NASA impacts uh, people's lives. Uh, and that can be done either through lectures, uh, through podcasts. Um, we have certain people that, uh, within the, uh, I don't know, maybe 700, 800 strong ambassador corps um, that are more artistic so they do all sorts of you know art, you know either crafts or things like that so it's whatever your passion is and how can it relate to nasa and help spread um the word because the amazing uh, amount of technology that is spun off or you know things like that um a lot of times you just don't hear about um 
So, it's not just Tang anymore. Yeah, exactly. we, were, we were excited last week, um, kind of reminded of NASA's mission to not only be looking out, but to uh, look in uh, when they released the the charts for where most of the the rain um, mm-hmm. in the northern hemisphere was coming from. And they were saying these are you know the vital wetlands that need to be protected at all costs. It's amazing how many missions that NASA has put up in orbit that are looking back down. Um, you know, everything from earthquakes, um, you know, tsunamis, hurricanes, the, the, what they're studying, um, and they're basically covering all the bases. Yeah, all that, all that work that NASA and JPL do um, actually comes back to, to us as people on the ground. Uh, as, as Mike was mentioning, oh, some of these um, pro- uh, projects are actually looking inward on Earth. Like, for instance, the Landsat program has been going on since the 1970s, mm-hmm. and they've continued to do this. So they're actually doing now real-time 3D mapping of the Earth. And that is really important for farmers, people who are actually uh, involved in producing al- agriculture for, uh, for all of us, to, to the food and everything that we eat. Uh, all that information actually in terms of soil er- erosion, hydrology, where the water is going, where it's raining, all that is provided for free. Your tax dollars paid for NASA to put that up, and so they give it back to the to everyone for free. Just about uh, as it is now uh, in terms of what we're doing. I think in the space program, we said one out of every $4. So basically every dollar we spent brought back $4 into economies. Wow. I think now it's like one out it, of seven. Is I, think, right? I think, yeah, Something the re- like return, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was uh, the first George Bush uh, actually made the quote that the investment in NASA um, – is basically the the best investment since um, Leonardo um, da Vinci purchased a sketchbook. <laughs> <laughs> That's an actual quote. Yeah. It's true, so when you're know. talking about JPL, it's the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, stationed out in California. That's correct. Tell, right. tell, tell us a little bit more about uh, about its mission. Yeah, so I mean, I think that the JPL's mission there, uh, again, they're, 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 they want to put their scientists actually to work and the, and the ambassadors, like Mike and myself, are the ones that are actually taking the information that they produce and giving it back to the public. But, of course, you know, JPL, is, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, is actually tasked with um, designing, building spacecraft, rovers um, that we actually see roving mm-hmm. al- along the, uh, the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, soon they're actually we're going to be putting a few ro- rovers on the surface of Venus. Um, and some some modules there. So they're actually actively involved in designing and testing and making sure that the equipment they design um, lasts for the mission term. But as you we've all seen, uh, they really do a good job of over designing their products so that they last way into yep. the future. I mean, the initial rovers were only ex- uh, expected to last maybe 90 days. Yeah, and spirit all, and opportunity were yeah. 90 days. And yeah. they went on into, what, 7 and 11 years, something like that? No, I think um, opportunity lasted 14, Maybe I'm not yeah. mistaken. So there's a great, uh, there's a great um, documentary on Netflix on on Oppie. Yeah. Oppie. Good night, yeah. Oppie. And yeah. definitely is a great one to, to look at. But and, I mean, and the current uh helicopter that's on Mars, it was oh, only yeah. it was only supposed to last five. Five, five months? Yeah. No, no five, five flights. Five flights. Five flights. So, yeah. so this yeah. is five the, flights total. Yeah. The ingenuity. The ingenuity, ingenuity yeah. right. being launched from Perseverance. Yep. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 And if you think about it, we're actually the first nation on Earth to land a nuclear powered uh, 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 nuclear powered uh, aircraft carrier 
on Mars. On <laughs> it, it technically carried it. It was in its belly. Yeah. Since we're yeah. tucked up underneath the whole time. And it is an aircraft. Yeah. And it is so. an, well, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And it's still out there flying around. Still flying around. Almost, yeah. what, two years later now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's still... I think like, it just published some brand new pictures this week that they were really, really excited about. Yeah. 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 yeah I think you're going to see more aerial um, products coming from, from NASA on Mars. You know, it's going to make uh, make aircraft um, much more viable there. They know how to do it now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're going to see those things scale up. So how do we know what gravity is like on other planets? Like, how do, Mike, do we just guess at that? Or? Yeah. That question. Uh, so ultimately, it comes down to mass. Um, so they're able to, you know, use various calculations. And again, um, you know, I'm a, a astro nerd ambassador, you know, by night. But during the day, I'm a finance and accounting guy. So <laughs> don't ask me to solve <laughs> the equations. Um, but, yeah, so you, you're basically trying to understand the actual mass of the planet, and there are many different ways that you can do that um, and kind of measuring uh, either the, uh, the effect that its moons have on a particular body or the effect that that particular body has on its central star. So, we, you know, once you kind of account for as many variables as you can, you can start to really uh, determine what the mass is. Um, the nice thing about when you look at stars is that their temperature or their color will actually tell you how dense it is. Mm. So that's kind of like a quote unquote, you know, standard candle. So, you know, based on that, you can start to understand exactly how much uh, gravity is being exerted on uh, different objects by different objects. But I think you have a really fun way of demonstrating that, right? Y yeah, we do. So one of the um, exhibits or uh, kind of more kids activities that we've done in the past uh, for big uh, events is called age, weight and jumping huh. on other planets. Uh, and it, you wind up getting a queue of kids, you know, lined up pretty quickly. So we first start out with a few analogs, uh, and we've got basically a normal can of soup. Um, hopefully most kids today know what a can of soup feels like. Yeah. Um, or they've stacked cans of soups, you know, playing in the kitchen. Um, but then we basically have then three analogs. Okay, well, if you were to take this can of soup to the moon, here's how much it would feel like it weighs and you kind of compare the difference here's how much it would weigh on mars and here's how much it would weigh on jupiter um again something of of, of the mass of the jupiter exerting the pressure mm -hmm. or, or the gravity and yeah that that uh, soup can is uh, about two and a half pounds wow <laughs> yeah yeah so and then we do the same thing with um backpacks so yeah. we fill up uh, kind of, hey, is that typical third grader backpack and then you know we're literally trying to lift up the jupiter backpack and i've had to use scuba diving weights uh to weight it down wow uh, so it's yeah. sufficient anyway, so, so yeah. they all yeah. look the same but they're definitely heavier yeah. and or lighter so um, you get the kids to jump, see how yeah, high they can then, jump. And, and then we literally, then the next station of that is we, we get their uh, age, their weight. We have a little scale there, and then we actually uh, measure their vertical leap. And then you can basically apply the, um, uh, the gravitational equations and be able to tell exactly how high they would be able to jump on another planet. Huh. So yeah. you know, here's how high you could jump on the moon. Here's how much you could jump on Pluto and, and so forth. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Good deal. So uh, NASA re uh, recently released uh, a look at the new uh, spacesuits they're going to use for the Artemis mission. Is that right, yeah. Jacob? That, that is correct. Mm -hmm. I think on uh, Wednesday they had a fashion show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can call that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it was it Axios or Axiom? Uh, Axiom Space. Yeah. Space yeah. that got the yeah. got the contract and. Um, 
they they are still definitely EVO, EVA seats is EVA or EVA, EVA, EVA yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so they're still very very bulky. You still mm-hmm. look like an astronaut. Yep. <laughs> right. Now the problem with those suits back in the 1960s is, I mean, those guys could barely move. Yeah. Right. I mean, literally, they had no mobility. Um, there's a story about uh, when uh, when Buzz Aldrin was getting ready to uh, to exit the uh, the limb to go on his his walk to the moon. He actually snapped off. Uh, a uh, rocket, uh, basically a, a the ignition switch. switch for the uh, the ascent engine. Yeah, the, the ascent for the ascent engine, and you know it's because he had no mobility, and right. so uh, they they went to launch from the moon, and all of a sudden there's no ignition, right? And they look over there, and the switch is like hanging out <laughs> the limb and everything, and it's like, well, what are we gonna Oops. do? Armstrong takes a pen and says, "This is what we're gonna do." <laughs> Jams it in there, and the ignition ready light came on. All yeah. right, it's it. Let's yeah. go. Let's but go. I mean, it just shows what yeah. you know. They just oh, had yeah. no mobility in those suits. Well, I, I think it was Ed White. I'm not yeah. sure, but in one of the Gemini um, missions, uh, when they were doing an EVA, I mean, you know, was under some severe strain, um, right. just trying to move and uh, you know, do simple tasks. Um, you know, well, the, the story of the, the story of the first Russian that actually did an EVA. He got out there, and the suit went. Yeah, <laughs> it was like a big balloon. balloon yeah, he literally could not get back into the capsule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. And, and then Ed yeah. White spent a little bit more time out there, outside the spacecraft than he was supposed to, because yeah. he was he was just looking at the the view. Yep. Yeah, it's yep. it almost like a Major Tom uh, moment there. Exactly. Ground control, Major Tom. But you know the the new suits and everything are so much more more, more mobility. Um, there, there's more diversity devi- designed into those suits, mm-hmm. so yeah. they're really there to accommodate, you know, uh, people of all types um, in those suits. Uh, and I, uh, I've never tried one. I would be really fun <laughs> to do that. But I mean, supposedly, I mean, you can literally bend down and do those really manual dexterity tasks that those guys, yeah. if they never dropped anything, that was it. They yeah, just they had to done. stay there. Yeah, they yeah. were done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, although you know Alan Shepard was able to take a nine iron and, and do his, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, hit a golf ball on the moon out there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, but I mean, but that's that's the thing that you know the Artemis mission is is supposed to put you know the first woman in uh, on mm-hmm. the moon, mm-hmm. and you know NASA had bit of a a bit of a uh, an embarrassment a couple of years ago when they were trying to do the, you know the, the first all woman space yep, right. spacewalk. Christina Cook, Jessica Meir on the space station, and their spacesuits didn't fit. <laughs> and yep. they had to send up new spacesuits in order to fit. Because, right. you know, these spacesuits have been in use for, you know, decades now, mm-hmm. but but they don't fit all the body types. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Crazy. So it's great, to, though, that they're actually trying to now introduce more diversity and yeah. everything. It yeah. shows yeah. that, you know, that over time, organizations can improve when they actually put their minds to it. Sure. Sure. So getting from the moon to Mars, Mike, you have a you have a lot to talk about about Mars. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it <laughs> Doug is a so, so Doug is pro Venus. I'm yeah. pro Mars. So let me ask you this. Or is, or is Buzz or Buzz Aldrin right? We should get our ass to Mars. <laughs> well, I think that's a lofty goal. Yeah. And the the issue in, again, my personal opinion uh, is most the other things are engineering, um, uh, you know, problems we need to solve. We still don't 
truly know the science of gravity and how it affects the human body. Oh. Microgravity um, is not good for our bodies. I mean, it starts to affect us almost immediately. And the long-term effects of that aren't super well-known. We've come up with really good ways to, to help combat that. In fact, I think uh, the effects that uh, Christina Koch uh, went through were much less severe than uh, I can't remember the two twins that you know. Oh, um, who, uh, Mark Kelly and and, 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 and his yeah. brother. So yeah. what? Scott Kelly. Scott. Yeah. yeah so Scott, yeah. yeah. What? Basically, the effects that that um, he suffered. So they're improving that, but it was a lot of hard work, a lot of um, you know rigorous training and exercise, you know, to to be able to to sustain your, your body and what was needed. So if we're going to go and go to Mars and stay there for a certain amount of time and then come back, I mean, that's a good three year, um, trip. Yeah. What is going to happen to our bodies? In fact, you know, you, you'll often see some of the international space station astronauts that they've been out there for a year. Um, they can't walk when they first get back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, how are you going to deal with zero gravity for nine some odd months to get to Mars? And then now you're going to go take, you know, you know, basically the first step on another planet. You know, hopefully you won't do a face plant um, <laughs> yeah. or or worse than that, break a bone. Right. Uh, right. Because you don't have a doctor um, or an orthopedist <laughs> in Mars. So um, there are, I think Mars is an incredible goal, but. Uh, you really need to figure out uh, a lot more of how the body will react long term. And the moon is a fantastic opportunity because it's yeah. only three days away. So you can do a lot of long term study and then make sure that if you do go to Mars, it's not a one way trip. Are, are, correct me if I'm wrong. Is is the, the gravity on the moon and Mars pretty comparable? No, um, very different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a lot less than Earth, but the yeah. moon, I want to say, is one eighth or one sixth. One sixth. One sixth. One sixth you know. Yeah, and on uh, Mars, I believe it's one third. Yeah. Okay. So, about one third. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can figure it out on, on on the moon, then it'll work on Mars. It'll and, work on Mars. And and the question is, do our bodies kind of does gravity affect us like? Uh, basically in a you know, straight linear fashion that means half gravity is half as good or is it kind of logarithmically and in other words yeah if you start getting below 0.7 it really starts to affect you we, we just don't know mm -hmm. um, yeah I think the other issue you have to really think about Mars is is that is cosmic radiation right uh, because uh, Mars has a really weak magnetic field mm -hmm. and the other thing and is a thin atmosphere very thin yep. atmosphere um, but um, in terms of the of the radiation um, Literally, um, the corona, uh, the sun's corona, stops its influence about halfway between Earth and Mars, and the sun's corona uh, actually um, eats up a lot of, uh, absorbs a lot of the cosmic radiation. Mm. So the inner planets like like Earth, Venus, Mercury, and the sun uh, 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 do not really receive all that cosmic radiation. Um, so Mars is just kind of sitting out there, hanging out there with no protection. And so the getting uh, being able to combat that that intense radiation now, of course, I think the maybe if we can get Musk to land some boring machines 
on yep. uh, on Mars. <laughs> uh, we can literally, you know, you're going to have to go underground pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in order to stay a long time, it, you're not going to be out there, um, uh, you know, just bopping around. You've got to have some way to protect yourself from from that extreme radiation. Mm. You know, for the for the trip, the uh, North Carolina School of Science and Math was letting their students study uh, fungus that mm-hmm. was found in Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. and I think that could make good um, building insulation. Yep. Uh, for oh the yeah, radiation. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a that's a that's a really interesting point. I think you know the whole science of extremophiles, which is actually came from NASA, uh, yep. is is a great study. Just to your point, uh, Jacob, was that the the fungus there um, is able to to grow uh, and actually you can use it as a, as an insulator. Uh, other things like the some of the trees that we have in the Great Northwest are living literally in Martian conditions. Um, there's a lot oh, of wow. carbon a lot of carbon dioxide in terms of the of the, mm-hmm. of the of the extreme cold and everything. Yeah. But also too, you know, plants are really good at taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turning it into oxygen. And so I, I would really like to see more experimentation there. We're actually trying to take some of those those extremophiles and actually begin developing, you know, um, you know, that kind of, you know, oxygen, see how that works. I think some of the other experiments that I hear are, are on phase are basically are sending like a robotic uh, mission there to to actually begin developing your own its own rocket fuel so mm-hmm. that when yep. people land they've got actually got a ready-made source of rocket fuel and harvesting that out of the atmosphere as well. So well, yeah. then that's part of the reason we're going to the poles on the moon to find mm-hmm. the, right. yep. the the trapped ice right, to right. create water to create rocket fuel. fuel. Yeah, now that's really one of the cool things. I think when you talk about where Artemis is going now, we're going to this really interesting place called Aiken Crater. Mm. Okay, Aiken Basin, I mean. And, and Aiken Basin is so interesting because there's actually, some at some point in time in the moon's geologic past, there was an impactor at Aiken, at, uh, Aiken Basin. And it literally is, uh, that impactor is, and I'm not making this up, it's all metal. It's made huh. out of metal. And it actually impacted the uh, the Bacon Basin, and it's so massive. It's just, it's big. It's like the Big Island of Hawaii. It's about the size of it, and it's literally causing the moon's uh, crust there to collapse. So it's it's so massive. It has its own gravity that's actually wow. pulling that in. So that's why it's really interesting that place. And as you mentioned, um, Ben, was that there's water there. They mm-hmm. think about the size of a small ocean in some of those craters. Huh. Yep. You know, they don't know how deep. That's one of the things we we'll really need to go down there. Okay, they don't know how deep and and how frozen it is. But I mean, you make it to the moon. What have you got? You have water. Yeah, water you can turn into breathable oxygen, breathable mm-hmm. atmosphere. You can also turn it into hydrazine, which is rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. You can also use that for you know use that to. Um, uh, with uh, in terms of an insulator, mm-hmm. because uh, if, if enough water over a structure mm-hmm. can insulate you from radiation, mm. and it also works as an insulator as well uh, for heat and warmth and everything. You have a lot there that you can actually build a long-term ha- habitat on the moon. Yeah, so it's a really interesting place to go. I think that's what is really neat about the whole Artemis mission is that it's about not only returning to the moon, but doing it in a sustainable way that yeah. we can continue our presence there. Exactly. And we definitely have in Aiken with Aiken Basin we've definitely got that that scenario where we could actually create a permanent habitat that's sustainable as Mike mentioned. Yep. 
Along those lines, the UK Space Agency recently decided to continue funding a project by Rolls-Royce to create a small nuclear power reactor to serve as a long-term energy source for lunar bases. This is reported by uh, Space.com. I mean, and they hope to have a demonstration model for a modular micro-reactor ready to deliver to the moon by 2029. I mean, that's also fascinating right there because you've got to have a... You gotta have a power source in order to right. to run those bases. Right. Oh, absolutely. I had not heard of that. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I've actually seen some models of of the ones that they they had proposed for Mars. I haven't seen the the lunar one yet. Yeah. But uh, I think that's you know at the end of the day, I know that 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 uh, nuclear uh, technology really got a bad rap from the seventies. Although some of the mistakes we made in the seventies and everything, but overall, it really is a great technology to use. Especially when you're talking about these really cold areas in space. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't care how good your battery technology is. When a battery is exposed to cold, it literally, it just collapses. Yeah, in it terms saps, of the, the, it inter- saps, saps the electrons yeah, out. Exactly, exactly. And so you need to have something that can work in extremely cold and harsh environments. Yeah. And nuclear uh, technology is really it, you know. One last question before we go to a music break. Uh, was the Martian correct? Can we grow potatoes with our own poop in in the Martian in the Martian soil? <laughs> I I've heard differing stories, um, especially about uh, and I, for the life of me I cannot remember the the there, there's some elements or chemical in the soil that basically would be toxic, um, and I, for the life of me I can't remember it. So there'd have to be a way to screen that out. But mm. again, um, I'm not a hundred percent familiar with that. Gotcha. I'm not sure I'd want to eat a potato <laughs> grown in mine or uh, anywhere uh, else. Let me just say species. this. We actually have that example, though, from from other countries who have tried to grow uh, food with their own human excrement. And the problem that you get with that is a lot of parasitic infection right. that comes from that. So that's why we don't want to actually use human excrement to grow food. Yeah. So because you really can get a lot of gut parasites coming from mm-hmm. that. So. Yeah, even on Earth, we already know that's a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. So does that mean we're going to be sending, like, animals to other planets, or are we just going to be shipping fertilizer directly? What's the Well, it's interesting because I, I, I have heard um, – there, there, I remember reading a short list of things that would actually be uh, very good uh, in, in, in terms of that. And, um, like, one of the things that just jumped out at me was um, – the now I can't remember that it's a very thin fish maybe it's halibut it's got kind of two eyes on, on one flounder. side oh, flounder. Flounder. flounder flounder okay yeah, yeah flounder. flounder yeah so flounder would be a really good fish uh, given its uh, you know I guess it's it's, it's makeup uh, the, the meat and everything but yeah so there are thoughts about bringing um, either those animals or something as a start uh, for some food but that's a you know that's an excellent point you've got to have your food supply with you. Mm-hmm. Um, or figure out a way to develop a food supply. Yeah, like a release schedule of, you know, how often are you going to launch missions to support? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, right. and, and that's another thing for Mars is you just can't launch a mission anytime you want. Um, right, I mean, the, like right. The, the orbits have to align, yep. and and, right. and it's months in advance and everything. Right. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much only every 18 months that it's a, it, given our current place. technology, yeah. our, space cla- our spacecraft are slow. Yeah. So you, in essence, you're... More than anything, you're using the position of the planets to get there um, rather than, uh, uh, in essence, trying to get a fast ship out there. So. Yeah, yeah. 
great. Bring it back to the astronomy club. Once when we're doing, uh, you know, the Artemis three mission, or even the Artemis two mission, or you know, the future Mars missions, or other other planet missions, um, with your with your home telescopes, can you see those vessels? No, nope. not 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 Artemis, but you uh, literally naked eye. You can see uh, you can see uh, tr- uh, tr- uh, ships going to the ISS. Yeah. Uh, the first, yeah. the first Falcon that the the, the launched with uh, with um, people going to ISS, I could see it here in Cary. In fact, that that picture rest. I don't know if you guys heard about it, about the lightning bolt right at that that struck. Right yes, after. I was out there watching it. I yes. and I was thinking, should I film this or should I not? And then all of a sudden, kablamo! There was that lightning <laughs> yeah. strike. But you can see some of them, some of the low flying stuff. There's also Wallops Island. I was gonna say we can yep. see. Yeah, yeah we, we could see launches mm-hmm. from Wallops. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. I. You know, and the thing is, you can go out to to a NASA website, and whenever they're planning something like that, uh, in fact, I'll just will go ahead and give a plug to spaceweather.com. Mm, it's mm-hmm. a great site to go out to. And they have all kinds of really cool information on there, but usually when they have a big launch that's visible to the East Coast, they'll actually pr- uh, uh, produce a map that will tell you where it's coming from, where to look, and they'll, yeah. you'll get these little concentric circles that will tell yeah. you number of minutes after yeah. the launch, that you'll be able to see it and yeah. approximate what altitude. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I've seen I've seen several myself, just literally from carrying North Carolina. Yeah. But yeah, with our with even with um, you know optics like we're that we're on Hubble, um, you wouldn't be able to see the spacecraft on right. the moon. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just we just don't have that kind of resolution. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, just not possible. But I think the, the I will say though that the lunar orbiters and stuff like that, lunar surveyor sur- spacecraft though, can see those footprints. Oh, yeah. They can see where the where the lunar landing bases are yeah. from the 1960s and everything and 70s. So you you can see them. They're there. But it, the, again, you've got to have the resolution that Mike's yeah. talking about. And and even uh, even Hubble, uh, as great as t- a telescope as it is, doesn't have the kind of really tiny pixelated uh, uh, resolution that you really need to have to be able to capture that. What about yeah. web or is that it's just well, it's just shooting so far out there. It would never look at the moon because yeah. of where it's oriented that would, right. if it were to turn it would create basically all that heat. Right. Um, oh, okay. right. Oh, wow. So physically, because it's beyond the moon, oh, that's it'll right. never look inward. Yeah. Inward. Right. A, yeah. you're trying to keep that that telescope cooled, right. Passively, because you're 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 looking in the infrared spectrum. But as Mike yeah. is alluding to, the moment that you get that alo- that amount of sunlight into that telescope, it probably would destroy it. Wow. Because you just do not want to. Um, you know, it it literally we can we can we've done examples where. People have been observing the sun and stuff like that with a with an approved filter, which I should say, don't ever point anything towards the sun. Very dangerous. Right. But uh, we've we've shown where you, you take the filter off, it'll literally burn a hole in the in a, in a can, film canister in like milliseconds. Yeah. So it's like super powerful, and you gotta remember you've got an 18 foot mirror out there in space. Yeah. I mean, it would probably probably burn it to pieces. Yeah. In a few milliseconds. Um, yeah, I th- I think. If I read, if I can remember correctly, uh, the smallest detail that you can actually see in any kind of you know high end uh, amateur telescope is going to be about three miles long. Huh. Okay. So that's the smallest thing you're, you'd be able to perceive. Now, yeah. so there's no way you're going to get a you know three meter um, uh, what do you call it? You know, the the landing stage Land, of lander. Yeah, the lander or the or the you know, rover. Yeah. Yeah. Just you. It's 
it's so beyond what we can see at the moment. Yeah. A lot gotcha. of times I ask people to, to think of it the other way. Think of it of you being on the moon, trying to look at the at the coast of Hawaii at the end of the ocean for a blue life raft. You won't be able you to. Be able, you know, yeah, you'll never yeah. be able to find it. You, know, huh. you wouldn't be able to see it. It's just okay. it's, it's absorbed by everything that's around it. Yeah. And as Mike said, you just don't have the pixel resolution. Yeah. Crazy. To take a music break, yeah, come back and talk to some more stuff. Maybe we'll go to Venus. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go uh, Team Mars. My jams. <laughs> my jams. Go Venus. <laughs> Going to hear some uh, Sarah Shook and the Disarmers in a moment with somebody else. But right now, we'll start off with Nina Freelorn, Grammy winner. Nina Freelorn from Durham, North Carolina with Button Up Your Overcoat. Ooh, I like this one. All right, you're tuning in to Little Riley Radio. That is Bat Fangs with the song Bad Astrology. They're playing out tomorrow evening out in Durham at the Pinhook, uh, along with Quasi. And uh, no astrology here. It's all astronomy hey, hey. here <laughs> yep. uh, on Lawn Darts Radio. I don't mind if you're into <laughs> astrology, but just know that Mercury does not reverse its orbit <laughs> in space. Yeah, just yeah. realize yeah. that. And if you don't celebrate Ostetius, your zodiac's out of date. <laughs> uh, well, and I'd like to know about the constellation or the the, the sign. Is it Ophiuchus? Ophiuchus, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, what is that? It's it's a constellation that the sun passes through. Yet it is not one of the. It's the thirteenth zodiac. Yeah. Oh, it's the thirteenth <laughs> zodiac sign. <laughs> yeah. Because okay, yeah. um, obviously our position in the universe has changed since the zodiac. Uh, was created, was yeah. created. so oh. if they're still basing their models on a few thousand years ago, you know, yeah. we, we've done some it's drift. Yep. Interesting. Well, I'm a Taurus. means I'm <laughs> stubbornly loyal. <laughs> <laughs> like a bull. <laughs> uh, well, the music was playing. Uh, you guys are starting to talk a little bit about um, astral photography. What, mm-hmm. How do you get into that, and, and what is that? I, I mean, it, obviously, you're taking pictures. Yeah, it's just, it's it's wanting to take pictures, and and there are definitely several levels of it. Uh, the it has come such a long way in the last twenty, thirty years. It used to be film, and you had to have the right uh, film, I guess, speed right. to the object you were uh, you know going to take, yeah. and you literally you open the shutter on the camera, and you had to manually adjust your telescope to continue tracking something uh and so people would have like a a, a, either a guide scope or something with these crosshairs on it and you would literally be trying to keep the with knobs for you know an hour trying to keep it tracking that's what my grandfather had to do in the navy he was not not the at night, he basically would control the cameras that were taking pictures. Yeah, of them. it was all yeah. highly, a highly yeah. manual process yeah. in those wow. days. Yeah, and you get one stray airplane that flies through it; the image is ruined. ruined. It's crap. Um, or someone, you know, somehow manages to shine light <laughs> near your telescope; it's ruined. Um, but now, with the advent of digital cameras um, and some of these sensors that are just so incredibly sensitive, uh, and also computing power, you can, in essence, get an okay raw image and you can you know reduce the noise you can amplify you know the 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 red channel or the green channel or the blue channel so um it's a whole lot easier and much more accessible than it used to be yeah um um and you know and it's it's, affordable 
Yeah. It's you know, it's much more affordable yeah. than it used to be. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. you can start off, you know, with a very simple telescope and a cell phone hel- holder. Yep. I mean, cell phone cameras have really turned out to be um, now are really quite fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so literally Mike and I have some photos that we a couple of years ago. There was a comet, Comet Neowise that was here. It was yep. a bit very visible in the, in the night and the, uh, morning skies. And we were out uh, in, uh, in the town to carry on top of the library parking yep. deck. Taking pictures literally with our cell phones uh, yep. out, out through a telescope. Yeah, wow. So that's, yeah. I would say that's the simplest that you. That can is absolutely start the simplest. With, you know, but that's basically yeah. you're able to take a picture of what you saw. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's yeah. closest to, to to that. I would say the closest. Yeah, yeah. and then that, you know if you want to go up, like Mike mentioned, you you really need to get a, a scope that does have some at least a, uh, some uh, uh, manages electronic motors and stuff like that. And then you can get a, a camera that has the, sen- the sensors now are so much more yeah. sensitive, mm-hmm. more accurate, mm-hmm. um, and they're more densely packed. So you can get a really decent picture um, yeah. uh, through. Um, and uh, Mike is actually one of the, actually the head of our EAA group uh, at at Raleigh Astronomy Club. I would do want to put a plug in though to our uh, before I forget it about our to our YouTube channel that's got a lot of free information on how to get into astrophotography and how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so and then I do want to say that we have a great imaging group in yes. the in the club. So if you're really interested in, in astrophotography, you want to start getting into it before you invest in a lot of equipment. I just really say, hey, try to attend some of our meetings and stuff like that, and you would really. Yeah. Or, or check and out the library or check out the check YouTube out, library. Yeah, check out the YouTube li- library first, and you're going to get a lot of great information. We have a lot of content out there for you to review and everything. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly easy to get into. Uh, again, I think having a, a plan and a direction of where you want to go, where you see yourself going before yeah. you start buying equipment is important. Because you, you can spend money. It's not as much money as, say, it's, it's not like a, a golf club membership or something like that but you would certainly you know you don't want to spend money that you you know for equipment that you're not going to use yeah i'm i'm curious how much of the spacex starlink satellites how much of those are affecting night sky observations out there i can only speak to my personal experience and um so yeah there are definitely times where all of a sudden you'll just get these almost like you know trains of satellites going through your mm-hmm. field of view and and that tends to be more newly launched um satellites i have yet to experience you know kind of something that's now f- part of the larger network um causing any difficulties but then again i'm doing kind of faster um astronomy uh, or digital yeah. we call it electronically assisted astronomy so mm-hmm. i'm not taking these huge long um know five minute uh captures where you might be able to detect some of those so in my experience it's just those things that kind of mess up the the view well i gotta tell you i got a little story over the summer i was a astronomy ranger for glacier national park uh, which is a really great place to visit and they have a super super dark skies out there so i was working at uh, they have a little observatory up on um uh, really i should say a really great observatory uh, on the east side, I was out uh, taking a picture of uh, M101, which is a huge galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, had a beautiful, beautiful shot. And about uh, probably, I don't want to say, about a m- minute into the shot, 
Kablamo, there's this big streak going through my uh, through my photo. Yeah. And uh, we mentioned earlier that we we actually use a technique called stacking, and a lot of times those images will, will stack out. Well, I sat there waiting, waiting, and waiting for that to yeah. stack out, and it would not, it wouldn't clear out. And so, I mean, I still have the image, but it's not one that I can really use. I want to yeah. say in the old days, I want to say in the old days when we first got started, to see a satellite go through your photo mm-hmm. was kind of neat. It was interesting. Yeah. Oh, hey, I got a satellite in my photo and everything. But now, uh, I got a satellite yeah. in my photo. It's a pain in the butt. Yeah, is, space mean, they, trash. We also. have, yeah. we have yeah. space junk. We've got, but we have so many satellites floating out, uh, going through the, through our photos now. It's it's not uncommon to see it. Yeah. It really isn't. It's, it's really pretty annoying at but times. But yeah, I, I've had a case where again, like that train, you're just yeah. waiting for that to finish. Um, because it it'll it'll stack up to a certain amount of time, whatever you tell it, and then it'll kind of throw out the old, bring in the new, bring in the new. Uh, yeah. So it takes a while uh, for them to to, to to cycle out. Yeah, and you're like okay, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're waiting, and you're hoping that another one's not going to come, gonna, yep. not going to follow it. That's the problem. Yeah, is it's not just that. There's you know there's probably another four or five and you know following it, and that's I think that's what was happening in my case that. That there was just you know uh, satellites continued following that other one, so I mean we're we're I will say that we're not really being very responsible with the way that we're using low Earth orbit. Yeah, we have a lot of junk that's floating around out there. We're always having to move this International Space Station up or down to try and uh, and, and avoid that junk, because I mean traveling at fifteen thousand miles an hour, uh, even like a small aluminum nut would mm-hmm. literally blast a hole in the International yeah. Space Station. So oh, you, yeah. this stuff is really powerful. We really need to do a, um, need to be more responsible as citizens to begin deorbiting that stuff and getting rid of it. So there are there are some JPL projects on the books for getting out and uh, and getting rid of uh, space junk, but right now most of it's design and talk. We don't yeah. have any any physical systems deployed right now to help us out with yeah. that. Is the the plan for those systems to like just bring them into the atmosphere to burn up, or would it be things that we were actually making sure we retrieve? I, I think it's both. It mix? Yeah. Right, it's both. Uh, there are both scenarios yeah. around there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the the safest, easiest option is always to have it burn up. Um, but you know, a very large object might or dense object might not burn up, and then you got to be very careful where it lands. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Doug, I mean, so you, Doug, you were a, you're a big proponent of going to Venus. Oh yeah, Venus. Yeah. <laughs> Why and, is that? Uh, you know, well, I'll tell you. You know, the th- we talked a little earlier about some of the problems with Mars and everything. Venus doesn't necessarily have all those problems. So Venus it sits well within the sun's corona, so you don't have the problems with cosmic radiation. That's uh, that's that's one of the big things that that can actually knock people out. The other thing too is Venus is very very close to Earth's mass. Mike mentioned earlier about the problems with, well, what happens in a microgravity to the human body over time? You know, people can't walk, their muscles atrophy, you have a lot of problems with, uh, you know, arthritis, you have a lot of problems with broken bones that can occur, you know, if you don't, or if you're not careful. And that, of course, that can happen anywhere. But um, in terms of Venus, Venus has a a mass that's very similar to Earth's. I think it's within about 97% of Earth's mass, and so the the gravitational field is very much like Earth. Um, the amount of velocity that you need to escape the gravitational pull of Venus is 
are very similar. This is about 10 miles per second versus 11 miles per second. So it's very, 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 very close to Earth. So it's a lot, it's very Earth-like. Now, so most people get uh, get hung up on the, okay, crushing pressure, you know, 850 on degrees surface. on the surface and everything. Mm-hmm. But in the in the upper atmosphere, about seventy five miles above uh, above Venus's surface, is surprisingly Earth like. Huh. In fact, you have you have um, a lot of the moi- uh, water vapor and uh, and oxygen that should be on the surface of Venus uh, is actually in that in that upper atmosphere. So it's surprisingly like Earth. So um, interesting. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard uh, you know comments that again, if you could. Um, s- stay in that band. You'd be able to just kind of walk out and enjoy. Literally, uh, you you need ma- make sure you've got the right um, you know, ability to breathe and, and that sort of right. thing. But you wouldn't need an extraordinary amount of you know spacesuit to right. help keep pressure. No, yeah, the pressure is the same. It's very similar yeah. to Earth. Yeah. Um, again, you have a lot of oxygen there. It is there is there is that that option of breathable atmosphere. It's, it's much easier to filter and everything. Um, and and the thing is, is that NASA is actually uh, de- uh, and uh, is developing uh, spacecraft um, that can actually float in the in the atmosphere. And it's surprisingly simple because all we need to float in the upper atmosphere of Venus is air. Huh. Not even helium. Really? We just need air. Just straight up air. Just straight up air. Wow. And so, uh, literally, uh, you could either be freezing your batouche off and Mars like a Jawa, or flying high like Lando Carusian uh, up there in uh, in Venus's atmosphere <laughs> in Cloud City. Cloud City. So I'm going for Cloud City. Cloud I mean, personally, City. I'm going for Cloud City. But uh, it literally is in our technological wheelhouse that we can do that. And they are they do have a a, a project that they are uh, working on now. Uh, where we will deploy ro- robotic dirigibles. Yeah. Um, at the, for those of you who don't, that's blimps. For yeah. some of you are like blimps. Uh, uh, for those it's a of flying you, machine. Yeah, it's a yeah. flying <laughs> machine, exactly. And literally, so we can literally be up there in, in the atmosphere. So the first one, the first phase is a robotic uh, uh, vehicle. The second phase is an orbital aircraft, uh, orbital uh, module with astronauts who would go down to the to the uh, f- the air platform. Uh, for a visit for a few weeks at a time, and then later on will be a much more permanent, mm-hmm. sustainable um, uh, environment where they would be doing research and stuff. Mm-hmm. But believe it or not, a- even on the surface of Venus, at some of the high altitude mountains, uh, it's a little it's a little more toasty, about two hundred and twelve degrees. Ooh. But we get that here on Earth at times. Yeah. So, um, so as some of those, you could actually establish a, a research station that wouldn't be crushed to death in about uh, five, five to ten hours. Yeah. So it, it is possible. The, the The possibilities for Venus are amazing. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting about Venus is is that Venus has um, a hydrological si- a cycle, a greenhouse effect that's in overload. Huh. Okay. So. What we can learn about Venus's greenhouse effect translates directly to us because their greenhouse effect is the same as ours. Yeah. But for some reason, it tipped over and started developing sulfuric acid rain versus regular rain. Regular rain. Yep. And you know what the scary thing is? Is that we found that beginning to happen in our own atmosphere. Yeah. So what yeah. we do with learning about Venus can be translated directly back to Earth. 
because we don't want your atmosphere and your greenhouse effect to tip over to making sulfuric acid rain. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. There's the case for going to Venus yeah, right Venus. there. <laughs> well, we only have a couple of minutes left here, but uh, Mike, Doug, thanks for joining us. Oh, uh, uh, pleasure. Where? Step, yeah. step one, YouTube channel. YouTube channel. Yes. Yep. Raleigh Astronomy Club 2 channel. Uh, and if somebody else, somebody wants to join or somebody wants to find out more events, where should they go? Go to our website. Uh, our calendar is free and open to the public, so yep. you can go and you can find out about what our events are. You can actually register for certain events uh, that are public. Do that. Uh, but, yeah, check our club out. We yep. definitely want to invite people out to, to do that. Yeah, and uh, any information on how to join, uh, it can be done 100% electronically. Um, Just sign up right on yeah, the webpage. Exactly. Yeah. And remember, and every first Friday. Yeah, every first Friday. Normally, sometimes we move the first Friday to the first Saturday, but uh, yeah, pretty much every first Friday uh, we've got um, observing events at the location uh, that's called Three Bears Acres. Where is uh, that? Is that near Falls Lake or? It was up, up near. Uh, yeah, it's up actually a little bit beyond that. It's Creedmoor, right? Creedmoor is it mm -hmm. Lake Creedmoor? Is there a Creedmoor Lake there? Or? It, it's I it's right around the lake that area. Is, but yeah, it is right around Falls there. Lake between, area. So yeah. Definitely north, north Raleigh. North, north, yeah. north Raleigh. Yeah. Really gotcha. pretty place. Very cool. Good deal. Well, we appreciate y'all hanging out with us and helping us become slightly better space nerds. <laughs> uh, we've got a long way to go, uh, but y'all shared some good hacks with us, especially like the laser pointer on the streetlights. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a great one. That's a great idea. Remember, streetlights. You did hear it here. Streetlights, not airplanes. <laughs> streetlights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unless, unless, unless you, want, you want to go to federal prison. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I was going to say, unless you want three squares a day on, behind bars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll leave you with some uh, Indigo D'Souza. This is Smog. It's off her forthcoming album, which will be out at the end of next month. All right. See you yeah. next week.